Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. My name is uh, David Chaikin of Sydney Business School, and I'll be chairing this evening's events. Uh, I'd like to say something about the, the way that uh, we proceed this evening. After a short introduction by myself, uh, Professor Cellini, um, who is our international guest, uh, will be speaking on water energy security for about 40 minutes. That will follow a, a, a talk uh, partly in response by Professor Bill Pritchard, from the University of Sydney, who will be commenting particularly on the issue of uh, food security. Uh, he will be speaking for about 20 minutes, and then uh, there'll be Q&A um, for about 20 minutes. So if you have any questions, uh, can you wait until the end session? Because um, if we're going to run this efficiently, that will be the best thing to do. Okay. Um, in 2015, under the byline Australia-Indian relationship going from strength to strength, Universities Australia welcomed the progress made by the Indian-Australian governments in further strengthening the education, training and research relationship between our two countries. Indeed, at the University of Sydney, our India strategy, uh, draws, uh, uh, drawn up by the Indian Advisory Group, um, recommends the adoption of an institutionalised approach to increasing the breadth and depth of the university's engagement with India. The Indian higher education system is in the process of an unprecedented transformation, driven by economic and demographic change. By 2020, India will be the third world's third largest economy with a corresponding rapid growth in the size of its middle class. At present, more than 50% of India's population is under 25 years of age, and by 2020, India will replace China as having the largest tertiary age population of any country in the world. Scholarly engagement with South Asia is a priority for many of the world's leading universities. And Australian universities, including the University of Sydney, need to catch up. Recently, a former diplomat from India summarised the position, and I quote, never before in the history of India-Australian relations has there been such expectation and hope among so many that a new chapter in bilateral relations is about to be written. After decades of historic neglect and distancing, perhaps this is a relationship whose time has finally come, where collaboration in higher education and research could provide the much-awaited tipping point. To lose this opportunity would be a disappointing and strategic setback. I'd like to say a few words about our speakers. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Professor Cellini a professor of strategic studies at the Centre for Public Research in New Delhi since 1997. Professor Chalani is one of the most prominent Indian academics in the social sciences, a prolific scholar and public, international, public intellectual, not only in the world but internationally. He is the author of nine books, including The Asia Juggernaut, The Rise of China, 
India and Japan, which was a major international bestseller. His more recent books, Water, Peace and War, Confronting the Global Water Crisis, and Water, Asia's New Battleground, will form part of his talk this evening. Our second speaker is Professor Bill Pritchard, a professor of human geography at the University of Sydney, with special research interests in agriculture, global food, and nutrition security. Uh, Professor Pritchard's bio, bio states, and I quote, he's interested in the way that global and local processes are transforming places, industries, and people's lives. He remains a skeptical internationalist, believing in the promise of a better world, but frustrated by the obstacles that beset this objective. I'll be interested in uh, hearing what Professor Pritchard says in the light of Professor Chilani's talk this evening. So without much ado, would you please welcome uh, Professor Chilani. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that um, introduction, David. My thanks to the University of Sydney for hosting me. My thanks also to Professor Elizabeth Hill for organizing this event. Now, this is a big subject, water, energy, food, and the nexus among the three. In the 40 minutes that I have, I can only offer you a slice of the bigger picture. So my attempt will be to look at the big scene and explain the challenges and risks and opportunities on the Indian subcontinent. Water, energy, and food are at the center of our lives and livelihoods. They are also at the core of our resource challenges. Water, energy, and food constitute a nexus. This nexus is called the stress nexus. Why? Because it places stress on a natural environment, it impacts climate instability, and it is, the, it is at the heart of the world's sustainable development challenge. The stress nexus continues to aggravate the problems, in part because of the way we define and pursue development. The concept of development in a real sense is much broader than just GDP growth. It includes a number of benchmarks, including protection of the biological and physical environments, public health, social equity, low income disparity, resource sustainability, environmental protection, gender equality, a robust civil society, all these benchmarks together constitute true development. Unfortunately, the world has made the mistake of overemphasizing just one benchmark, which is GDP growth. GDP growth entails ever-increasing production and consumption, which in turn are bringing natural resources, especially water and energy resources, under increasing strain. National progress in an ideal world should be measured not just in GDP terms, but also as to how well human needs are being met through various measures. Tiny Bhutan has dreamily put forward the concept of gross national happiness as a measure of national progress. We can think of other terms that, that are better than GDP growth. South Asia 
is a good case study of how the water energy food nexus is at the root of the development challenge that not just this region but many other regions face. South Asia also illustrates how water, energy and food through the nexus are putting pressure on each other. Together this nexus is putting pressure on the environment but this nexus is also putting pressure on each resource in this nexus. As water becomes scarcer in Southern Asia, its energy intensity is amplifying because greater energy is required to pump groundwater up from greater depths, to transport surface water across longer distances, to chemically treat water that has become degraded, and to tap non-traditional sources of supply, such as desalinated seawater and recycled water. Water, wastewater that has been chemically treated and recycled, it's known as recycled water. The energy sector for its part is very thirsty. It's a very thirsty sector. You need copious amounts of water for any energy activity, including energy extraction, energy refining slash processing, and energy production. For example, to produce electricity, steam-based power plants need a lot of water for their cooling and steam cycle processes. Much of the world's electricity is produced by steam-based power systems. On the Indian subcontinent, water shortages are throwing up new challenges in the energy sector, including crimping the rapid expansion of the energy infrastructure, threatening the viability of some existing power projects and other energy projects, and imposing additional costs. If you are a company CEO and you want to set up a new energy facility, let's say in India, you'll have to think first about the location. Is there enough water available in the location where you wish to set up the plant? Often choosing the location is, is a, the a location is chosen largely both in terms of you know, suitability of, of, a, of a facility, but more importantly, in terms of sufficient availability locally of water resources. India has been forced to locate most of its new and, plan, and planned nuclear power plants along its coastline. Why? Because these water-guzzling nuclear power plants can thus depend, they can, they can draw on seawater for, for their operations. If you locate them in the hinterland, then, then nuclear power plants will aggravate the water crisis. You don't have enough fresh water in the hinterland, so it's best to locate these nuclear power plants along the coastline. This is what India has done, so that these plants can largely rely on seawater for their operations. The water energy nexus also extends to food. For example, Energy, according to one study, makes up about 25 to 30% of the cost of crop production and about 70 to 75% of the cost of groundwater in Asia. Compounding the stress nexus challenges are misguided government policies that seek to promote through a web of subsidies the manufacture of biofuels from irrigated crops. Now let me briefly outline the issues re relating to each of these three resources. 
And let me begin with water in a larger inter-country context. South Asia may be one of the world's most densely populated and thirstiest regions, but it is the only region other than North America where inter-Riparian relations between countries are governed by treaty arrangements. They are water-sharing treaties between India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Pakistan. They are also water-sharing arrangements, or I should say water arrangements in an institutionalized framework between Bhutan and India. The only missing link in the bigger picture is China. Why is China important? This map will tell you why China is important. Because of China's control of the Tibetan Plateau, China is an effective control of the sources of river flows. Almost all the major rivers of Asia originate in one area, the Tibetan Plateau. China, however, does not accept even the concept of water sharing, so it does not have a water sharing treaty with any neighbor. In fact, it has 12 riparian neighbors which stretch from Russia and Kazakhstan, and, and those two countries don't get water from the Tibetan Plateau, but the countries of Southeast Asia and South Asia get water from the Tibetan Plateau rivers. Now, some, there are some grim statistics that underscore the severity of the water crisis in Asia, but specifically in South Asia. This chart tells you the situation in the various sub-regions of Asia. If you look at South Asia, it has 22% of the world's population, but it has to make do with very low per capita water availability. In the global context, the world's most water-stressed continent is Asia. It also happens to be the world's economic locomotive. Ironically, because water is such an essential element in economic activity, and, and given the fact that Asia is so water-stressed, the question is that can Asia remain the locomotive of the, of the global economy without addressing its water crisis? But within Asia, as you can see from this chart, the most water-scarce region in per capita terms is South Asia. In this light, it is not a surprise that water has become a divisive issue in Asia and in South Asia in particular, both in the inter-country context as well as in the intra-country context. India is a classic example of raging water feuds between and among states. There are so many water feuds in India between and among different states. That is also true of some of the other countries in the region. For example, in Pakistan, there is perennial water discord between upriver Punjab province and the downriver Sindh and Baluchistan provinces. To be sure, in an age of growing water stress, shared water, shared water has become a source of competition across large parts of the world, including the United States. In Australia, for example, water squabbles between states that are located in the Darling Murray Basin are becoming louder. But the water wrangles in Southern Asia are particularly ugly. Much of, much of the water in Southern Asia is a shared resource. It's a resource shared across national and provincial 
boundaries. These arrows tell you in which direction the water is flowing and the figures are in billion cubic meters per year. Shared water has become an instrument of power, stoking underlying tensions, fostering greater competition, and impeding broader collaboration. In addition, such competition is also imposing costs on the natural environment. South Asia's rate of utilization of water resources now already exceeds its renewable stocks. What do I mean by that? Water is a renewable resource, but it's a finite resource. Because nature has a fixed capacity to renew water. That capacity of nature has remained the same since the first people appeared on our planet. There has been no increase or decrease in nature's capacity to renew water. That capacity internationally is about 47,000 billion cubic meters per year. So in South Asia, what we are seeing is that the rate of utilization of fresh water now exceeds the stocks that, that nature can renew. In other words, South Asia is using tomorrow's water to meet today's needs, thus accelerating environmental degradation. State policies also have contributed to this process of environmental and resource degradation by providing irrigation subsidies as well as subsidized electricity and diesel fuel to farmers. Now these subsidies have greatly contributed to resource depletion and environmental degradation. Now this graph, this chart that you see, shows some selected Asian countries. It captures the water crisis in Asia. This is a UN index, an index of water available for development, as it is called. It's a measure of per capita availability of water for economic and ecological uses per year. It's benchmarked to 1980, and it shows sharp declines in water availability in some countries, with, with the sharpest decline being in India. Now let me turn to food. Professor Bill Pritchard is a real expert on food. I'm going to just briefly try to sketch the outline on the food challenge in South Asia. South Asia's crop yields are already low by Australian standards or by international standards. But now growth in crop yields is beginning to flatten or even slow, thereby compounding the food challenge. Until the 1960s, this region, as well as the rest of Asia, were a food scarce were food scarce regions dependent on food imports. Then came the Green Revolution. And in one generation, Asia and South Asia went from being food importing regions to becoming food exporting regions. So this was a dramatic change in the food scene. That like in a matter of 20 years or so, Asia as a whole and South Asia in included, went from importing food to actually exporting food. This was the Green Revolution that did it. It happened on the back of an unparalleled expansion in irrigation, an expansion the world hasn't seen in any other region. This chart tells you how in, a, in about 40 years there was a rapid expansion of irrigated acreage 
in Asia. In fact, Asia now has much of the world's irrigated acreage. 72% of the world's irrigated acreage is just in Asia. So Asia is the hub of the world's irrigated farming. But just like the Darling Murray Basin in Australia is Australia's most irrigated sub-region, South Asia is Asia's most irrigated sub-region. In fact, it's the largest concentration of irrigated acreage found anywhere in the world. It's in South Asia. But now there are two developments that are threatening to cloud South Asia's relative food success. I say relative because you still have malnutrition and undernutrition among the poorer sections of the populations. And these two developments are, first, changing diets, and second, adverse impacts on resources and the natural environment. One can argue that South Asia's water crisis is the quote-unquote fruit of the Green Revolution, which was founded on the unbridled use of natural resources, especially water, land, and nitrogen-based fertilizers. This is how agriculture boomed. Use as much water as you want. Reckless use of land and reckless use of chemical fertilizers. And now the costs are being paid. The costs are being paid in a significant manner, and that's the reason why irrigation has proved to be both a boon and a curse. To give you one figure that illustrates the curse, 85% of the water in South Asia and about 80% of the water across Asia is diverted every year for agricultural use. Now, looking ahead, this level of water use in agriculture is simply not sustainable. The other development relates to changing diets. Diets have changed across the world. If you look at the European diet, the diet of, of Europeans today is very different from the diet they had, let's say, 100 years ago. But in Asia, the diets have changed fundamentally in just one generation. The traditional rice, cabbage, noodles diet has become much meatier because of increased preference for animal-based proteins. The rapid increase in meat consumption is a major driver of resource stress and environmental degradation. You may, you may like to know why. Why is meat production such a, such, a, such a drain on resources? There are two reasons for that. First, meat production is an indirect way of generating food for humans. Because animals convert only a tiny fraction of what they are fed into meat. It takes up to 30 crop calories to produce one calorie of meat. So it tells you how indirect is this way of food production. And the other factor is that meat production is highly water intensive. In fact, it's notoriously water intensive. Let me see whether I have that chart, yes. Now this chart explains the water intensity of different food products. On average, I'm just saying on average, meat production is 10 times more water intensive than plant-based calories and proteins. Now in this larger picture, if you look at India, if there is a silver lining in India's otherwise dismal water situation, it is the fact that large numbers of Indians are vegetarians. Imagine if Indians had the same per capita meat consumption 
levels of Americans. India would have by now been hit by an environmental catastrophe because the Americans, the Americans, American consumption of meat is by far the highest in the world. And also among the Indians who eat meat, as a recent study has shown by the UN, the meat consumption in India among the meat-eating Indians ranks among the lowest in the world. Now let me just briefly turn to energy. It is often said that China could become the first country in the world to age before it gets rich. India faces no such specter. However, India has become the first important economy in the world to take on onerous climate-related obligations before it has provided electricity to all its citizens. Under the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, India has committed, has committed to reducing the carbon intensity of its, of its economy by about one-third by 2030, in other words, within the next 13 years. It has also agreed to produce 40% of its electricity from non-fossil fuels. The single-minded focus on carbon, however, threatens to worsen India's water crisis because of the water-guzzling nature of the energy sector. What may be, quote-unquote, clean from a carbon standpoint could be dirty from a water resource perspective. To give you just one example, clean coal involving carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, ranks along with nuclear power at the top of the water intensity chart, in the water intensity chart. Let me see whether I have that chart. Yes, here. The CCS, the CCS, clean coal, this is advanced clean coal with CCS, and you look, you compare that with nuclear CL, and you see that these are the two most water intensive power generation technologies. So what may be good in terms of reducing carbon intensity isn't good when you look at it from a water resource perspective. That is the reason why India has to strike a prudent balance between carbon intensity and water intensity in choosing its energy options or else efforts to address the energy crisis would worsen the water crisis and vice versa. Now looking ahead, what's the way forward? On the food front, and Bill will say more on it, what we need is a new green revolution. But unlike the first green revolution that exacerbated the impacts on ecosystems, the second green revolution ought to be a doubly green revolution. In other words, a green, green revolution anchored in the principles and practices of sustainable development. But simply, what we need to do is to grow more food with less water, less land. Why less land? Because cities and industries are encroaching on farmland and with less energy. Less energy in the form of nitrogen fertilizers. The extensive use of nitrogen fertilizers has contributed to water pollution. It has led to increased soil acidity and led to buildup of nitrogen in the atmosphere. The important point to remember is that water, energy, and food are so inextricably linked that without their integrated management and planning and policy moves to address challenges concerning one resource are going to aggravate and worsen problems relating to the other two resources. What we need is a 
holistic long-term approach that harmonizes water, energy, and food policies. And I, I yet have to see a country in the world that actually harmonizes water, energy, and food policies. But this is what we should all be doing in, in every country, harmonizing these three key policies. As far as, far as the energy sector is concerned, for power generation, utilizing alternative cooling technologies, such as dry cooling and hybrid cooling, can be of help. Although plant efficiency penalties and higher costs at present limit the extensive use of these alternative technologies. The water intensity of the energy, energy sector can be mitigated by supplementing fresh water withdrawals with non-freshwater resource use. California has done that. California now, much of the water that is being used in power generation in California is not fresh water. It's non-fresh water resources like seawater. Brackish water, brackish water is less saline than ocean water. It's found in coastal areas. It's also found in underground aquifers. It, California is also using degraded surface water and using wastewater that has been recycled without being cleansed to 100% purity level. You don't need to cleanse wastewater to 100% to purity if you wish to use that water in energy sector. And even in the agriculture sector, if you cleanse wastewater up to 70 to 80%, plants, plants can grow healthily with, with such lower level of treatment. And I think in South Asia, policymakers have no choice but to now to draw increasingly on non-freshwater resources in order to reduce the stresses on freshwater resources. To save water, it's essential to save energy, and to save energy, it's essential to save water. Combined energy and water conservation is critical to even ensuring that we can slow down climate change, because without this nexus being managed, global warming will continue at the present pace or even accelerate. Now I come to the very end of my presentation, which is, when you look at it internationally, much of the international focus today is on the maritime issues. Maritime issues also relate to water, but these are different sorts of issues. They relate to, for example, um, South China Sea, East China Sea. This is where you know the international focus is. But as South Asia illustrates, the riparian issues, the issues that relate to river waters, are no less important. The big question is how can the struggle for water, for fresh water, be prevented from becoming a tipping point for conflict? The short answer is by instituting cooperation and collaboration. Averting water wars demands four things. Rules-based competition and cooperation, water sharing arrangements, uninterrupted flow of hydrological data from upriver to downriver countries, and dispute settlement mechanisms. Because even if you have a water sharing treaty between two countries, disputes will arise. So there should be a dispute settlement mechanism built into the treaty or created separately. In other words, transparency, collaboration, sharing, and dispute settlement are the building blocks of water peace. I mentioned that water is a renewable but finite resource. South Asia illustrates that traditional supply-side measures 
are running into natural limitations because water resources are already overexploited. No, no longer can you ask the engineers to increase the extraction rate from rivers and from aquifers because these bodies of water are already overexploited. So what should we do? We have to tap non-traditional sources of supply. If you look at the world's oil and gas sector, there has been a game-changing development in recent years. That development has turned the United States from being an energy import-dependent country to becoming a country that exports oil and gas now. How did it happen? Because the oil and gas sector began tapping non-traditional sources of supply. And those non-traditional sources of supply were shale and tar sands. Similarly, in the water sector, we need to explore and develop non-traditional sources of supply. And for South Asian economies, the focus ought to be on these three non-traditional areas. The first is to use clean water technologies like membrane and distillation technologies to open up new sources of supply such as recycled water, desalinated seawater, and desalinated brackish water. The second area is achieving greater water use efficiency and productivity, especially by containing wasteful practices in agriculture. Agriculture is a big drain on water resources in Asia and in South Asia in particular. And the third area is expanding and enhancing the water infrastructure so as to mitigate seasonal and subnational imbalances in water availability and to harvest rainwater. Water, water storage capacity is an important measure of any country's ability to combat drought. Now you can see Australia is doing very well. It has a very impressive water storage capacity. But even when Australia was hit by a prolonged drought from 1996, which lasted a decade, in some areas it lasted until 2012, Australia was reeling under the weight of that drought. But at least Australia had this immense water storage capacity. But look at India. It's abysmal water storage capacity tells you how weak it is to fight drought. These cycles of drought and flood, which Australia also experienced in recent years, are becoming recurrent across large parts of Asia. And one way to address such cycles is to improve water storage capacity. So to conclude, improving water management Water supply management demands abandoning the business-as-usual approach and embracing unconventional approaches, including new market mechanisms, public-private partnerships, innovative practices, conservation, and the tapping of non-traditional sources of supply. Thank you. So thank you, Professor Cellini, for the wonderful presentation, extensive and exhaustive in your analysis of the, the Gordian knot of these three stresses of water, of energy and of food. Um, in my presentation that follows, which, in which I'll focus on food, I was aware that you would be talking in particular about these nexus, these nexi. Um, and so I've structured my comments at a slightly different scale that, um, that will touch on many of the observations you make but perhaps frame it in perhaps uh, ways that are less focused on the nation state and perhaps more focused at the human scale. So I, won't, I want to leave time for questions so I'll go through these slides that I have and my observations um, at a clip um, but of course Hopefully I won't skip over any of the key messages. I want to start by uh, perhaps 
observing or making some observations about some of the framing concepts that we use when we think about particularly the issue of food. Um, and there's been some recent developments in this field that have been uh, quite informative in the way that ideas have shifted. The first of these is reflected in that uh, first quote there that comes from the FAO, the, Uni the United Nations as Food and Agricultural Organisation, um, which has shifted the debate about food from mere questions of supply, and I don't use the word mere lightly there, but in the sense of food security not just being about the amount of food that we produce at any scale, but the way in which that's made accessible to populations in need. And I've highlighted in red there the word access, because that's, that's the key word in the way that um, United Nations organisations um, and through that leadership national governments and NGOs and civil society more broadly thinks about these issues these days. Um, so it's really a question not just of how much food we are producing, but how we are socially using that food and for what purposes. Second key development that has occurred in recent years has been the conjoining of the words food and nutrition. So again, it's not just what the amount of food expressed perhaps in calories we are producing, but the extent to which that food contributes to human health through nutritional properties. And so by these two developments, we get a slightly, uh, we get not a slight, but a quite dramatic change in the way in which these debates are forwarded. Um, and moving on from Professor Chelaney's observations, which I thought summed up very brilliantly the, the, the Gordian knot of these three dynamics, um, the addition to that debate that I'll make is that India very problematically has used the gains from the Green Revolution to address problems of food and nutrition security. And I want to go through that argument today because what I want to do is then say, if we are then facing a scenario in India, as Professor Chelaney observed, of increasing stresses on water and by extension on food, then the problematic gains that have been developed so far are going to lead to a social and economic crisis of even greater magnitude unless the kind of innovative solutions that Professor Chelaney mentioned are brought into action. So to frame this debate, Food and nutrition security needs to be thought of in social terms, in terms of access and the contribution of food to nutrition. And I would say it also needs to be nested within a broader concept of human security, encompassing not just the right to food, but the right to um, all these other seven uh, constituent elements of human security, economic security, food, health, environmental, personal, community and political. And I'll touch on some of those issues in greater depth in a moment. Because what it implies is that when we think about perhaps how we regulate or try and make real the promise of food and nutrition security, we need to think of it as not just being a problem of food, but a problem of how individuals in need are structured around the employment market for economic security, uh, their relationship to government about whether their voices can be heard in decision making, which is a question of political security. Um, their personal attributes, particularly around gender or in the case of India, perhaps caste or tribal affiliations, which impact upon the way that society views them, and their access to clean and healthy environments. So it's a very complex issue in itself, even notwithstanding the broader framing of that that Professor Chelaney gave in terms of the uh, relationships between the food system and um, energy and water. This touches on a very uh, relevant point that Professor Chelaney made about India's movement since, or in the past 50 years, but particularly um, the earlier period of that uh, from the mid-1960s through to the 1980s or 1990s. Now, uh, th this quote was made in 1965. The author was the chief statistician for the Food and Agriculture Organisation at the time who wrote a book forecasting the food problem in, of India. And this was very much a, a quote, and you can read it yourselves, which expressed the view that uh, India is a hopeless case in terms of its ability to grow enough food to feed its population. This was the, 
standard view of influential people like this author in the mid-1960s. But as Professor Cellini observed, this all changed very rapidly with the Green Revolution, um, which in many respects was the most important single development um, in the global food system of the 20th century. So that quote I gave you a moment ago uh, was written in 1965. Um, the author wouldn't have known, but it seemed as though his views were becoming very real a year or two afterwards, when India was hit by two years of successive monsoon failure, um, and that led to a major economic, political and nutritional crisis across the country that was only allayed in the first instance by emergency food aid courtesy of the US taxpayer, um, for obvious geopolitical reasons at the time, but then in the slightly more medium term by uh, the application of Green Revolution technologies that were initially developed in Mexico and the Philippines for different crops and then imported into the Indian context by the very influential agricultural scientist M.S. Swaminathan, um, based down in well, what was then Madras, now Chennai. And um, that story's fairly well known, and um, I don't want to sort of talk too much about it. Um, Professor Chelaney has mentioned some of this already, but perhaps, can I work this? Yeah. Um, the key geographical feature here was the, 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 the major attributes of the Green Revolution was to bolster production about here in India, in the northwest states of Punjab, Haryana, and to a lesser extent, UP. Um, and... Uh, this was, as Professor Chelaney said, largely brought about because of access of irrigation infrastructure at the time. In fact, some of this was laid down in the British period, the colonial period, at that time to bolster the cotton industry for the Manchester fabrics industry under the logic of colonialism. Uh, through the 20th century, uh, a rotation cropping regime of wheat and rice permeated that region and yields increased by three or four times within a decade in that region. A fantastic story of production growth, albeit at the cost of the extraction of groundwater and the depletion of soils and the application of huge amounts of uh, manufactured chemical uh, fertilisers and pesticides. Um, but of course, if you've got massive increases in production uh, occurring in one part of the country and the mass of the Indian population located in other parts of the subcontinent, you need an, an access regime to distribute those surpluses. And the solution adopted by the government of India at that time, strengthened through subsequent decades, was to use social safety net mechanisms, primarily the um, public distribution system, which is the world's largest social security safety net, um, via purchases through the government of India via the Food Corporation of India. And still to this day, the Food Corporation of India annually purchases about a third of the wheat and rice crop in India at a cost, and then distributes that at subsidy to the poor of India at a cost of about 1% of GDP. Massive budgetary cost of redistributing these surpluses for social good. So this was the, how the logic of the, the productivist logic of the Green Revolution was translated into an access regime. Um, and so that story is very mixed, of course. Um, India has become... Uh, the world's largest rice exporter and a significant exporter of wheat as well. Um, it is a calorie surplus country in net terms. And, and as production of those two cereal grains increased dramatically, they became more embedded in the Indian diet. Uh, Professor Chelaney very accurately talked about the uh, low livestock, uh, consumption of livestock products in the Indian diet um, and that's very true. If Indians were meat eaters like most of the rest of the world, the, um, the challenges facing the country would be insurmountable. Vegetarianism has been a blessing for ecological purposes on the Indian subcontinent. Um, but there is another side to this story, which is that the, the provision of low-cost wheat and rice through the Indian production system had a substitution effect for other foodstuffs. So traditional coarse grains, millets, which were a very important part of the Indian diet, have shrunk. Pulses have shrunk. Pulses were traditionally grown um, in to, to, as nitrogen fixes within wheat or rice production, but with the Green Revolution, that need was uh, supplanted by chemical additives, and so pulse production became less central to many farmers' growth act, uh, agricultural activities. Um, and other kind of nutritionally valuable crops, particularly dark leafy green vegetables, 
and fruits have shrunk relative to their composition in traditional Indian diets. This is, and if you add to that the, the, the increase in middle-class consumption of particularly products laced with large amounts of oils and fats, you have in India a classic case of the double burden of malnutrition with imbalanced diets contributing to high levels of undernutrition on the one hand and poor diets because of other reasons for the middle class leading to uh, an epidemic of obesity and non-communicable diseases like uh, hypertension and uh, type, type 2 diabetes. However, this I think graph, this is this data here, um, I think tells the biggest contradic contradiction of this story, and this is comes from the recent uh, Global Hunger Index released just a couple of months ago, um, which ranked India as the equal one hundredth worst country in addressing hunger around the world, um, and in fact you can see here it is equal to countries like Djibouti. Rwanda, and not too far from Uganda and Ethiopia. It's a country like Guinea-Bissau in West Africa has actually got a superior performance compared to India with regards to hunger. This is significant because India has massively increased its food production. It's become enormously wealthy in terms of particularly the middle class and lower middle class in recent years. It's an economic powerhouse that we all know of, yet its hunger performance has, um, has lagged what other indicators of economic and social um, contribution to the planet might suggest. So this is a great contradiction of the Green Revolution, the imbalancing of diets and the failure, even notwithstanding social security um, implementation such as the public distribution system to resolve these problems. So I'm going to move forward and basically say what do we learn from this, uh, what might we say about um, the future of, uh, or the present context of food nutrition insecurity in India and a future scenario. This is actually, these five points are more based on the current scenario. I'll just off the cuff make some observations about the future. Um, and I'm framing this in somewhat of a geopolitical context as well. Uh, Professor Cellini accurately talked about um, international conflict over water and other resources. Uh, I'll focus more on the intranational scale of India, where I think there are some imbalances and injustices which are fermenting various kinds of unrest. Um, and I'll firstly talk about the link between problems of geographically uneven patterns of hunger and undernutrition and political tensions in India. I'll talk about the contradictions of relying on the Green Revolution and state-based subsidisation of calories on the overarching food and nutritional insecurities of the country. I'll talk about the contradictions between the failure of India on the one hand, or the successes of India on the one hand to promote food production, but the failures to implement just land tenure regimes uh, as a third observation. I'll talk about India's immersion in international agreements, particularly based around the WTO and what that suggests for its food and security policies. And I'll finally say, and I actually, I'm not sure I particularly agree with my own comments in number five there, I, I certainly agree that at the current time, the problems identified in the Global Hunger Index are fundamentally not about food production per se. They're about the social and economic management of those food surpluses in India. But actually, if we go forward in the way that Professor Chelani has indicated with the stresses on water and soil and energy, um, there is the very real scenario that what we saw in the 1960s, a problem, a crisis of production, might emerge again in India in the, in the very near future. So let me just go through those very quickly, conscious of the time that I am. Um, the first point I want to make about the intranational geographical unevenness of patterns of food and political conflict. Some of you in this room will know about the Naxalite conflict in India, which was one of the more violent internal struggles in India to engulf the country in recent times. And this is certainly not an original observation of mine. But uh, when we compare the map of India on the left, which is the proportion of underweight um, children in the country by state, um, and we compare that on the right to the map of uh, Naxal-affected districts, which are districts in India affected by 
um, what is a leftist Maoist uh, insurrection. There's a very real um, correlation between um, undernutrition and political violence in India, um, featured particularly here around states such as Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Bihar, and Madhya Pradesh, um, and to some extent um, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh. Um, and, you can, and as I said, this isn't an original observation by mine at all, but it does point to the fact that um, when we talk about the geographically uneven expression of hunger and undernutrition in India, it is a political problem for the government of India. And the failure of the institutions of India to provide adequate food to populations in need, particularly in the east of the country, has very directly led to a security crisis uh, that has engulfed India for many, for many years. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's an important point that um, I think Professor Chalani is correct in saying that there are potential future crises over water rights in the Indus Ganges Basin between India and Pakistan. That is a real threat, and the India-China threat is very real. But there is also an internal set of threats that are going on in India about these contradictions. The second point, and these, these graphs are a little bit complex to read, and perhaps I, I won't spend too much time explaining the detail. Um, but uh, some recent work that's in press, um, I shouldn't say in press, it's in review at the moment, some work that I've published with some colleagues, points to the fact, well, it, it asks the question, have the states that have implemented improvements in the delivery of social security mechanisms, particularly through the public distribution system, seen improvements in the nutritional profiles of their populations? And again, I, I won't talk about these graphs in any detail because it will uh, bore us in detail. But there is very, our argument is there are very real improvements that are going on. So the extent to which India has improved its nutritional performance in recent years has been patchy and has been very much led by improvements by the delivery of state government agencies of food for the poor. So again, it's not really reflective of improvements in production systems or changes in economic structure necessarily. Um, India is... India's economy, I'd argue, is very much uneven in its expression of benefits, with a, um, the middle class being anchored more formally in the formal economy and the lower classes being in the informal economy, a, a very different kind of labour force structure to what has emerged in China over recent years. And so poorer populations are still reliant on state distributions of food grains, um, and improvements to, in the delivery mechanisms of food grains by states. And some states have done very well in regard to this, particularly states like Chhattisgarh and Odisha in recent years. We are seeing this in, um, in NSS uh, uh, data. This is major sort of um, uh, statistical data coming out of nationwide surveys from India. So I think, I think we have to say still that the imbalances of economic advantage and nutritional outcomes in India are being alleviated at the current time by forthright government action. And I think to the extent to which India can continue to improve the delivery performance of its social safety nets is the key to, in the short term at least, improvements in the nutritional uh, composition of its population and the ability of the government to allay some of the crises I mentioned in the previous slide uh, relating to political insurrections such as the Naxalite movement. Um, this leads to a question that I touched on in the previous slide. If the reliance on social safety nets is to continue, or if the government is to wean its population away from a reliance on social safety nets, I should say, and towards more economically sustainable ways of feeding its own population, it needs to give livelihood resources to its population. Um, and India has had a very, again, a very patchy record of this in recent times. The, um, the growth profile of India has been very much focused on urban rather than rural, on the services the formal services sector, uh, software development, business services and the like, as opposed to manufacturing and agriculture, which actually have a much stronger multiplier effect in terms of pro-poor development. Um, and... The quote I have here from Justice Singhvi of the Supreme Court of India um, I think sums this up, that when we talk about problems of uneven economic development and problems of 
the ability of poor populations to feed themselves. In a sense, it's, it's about the, the problems of poor populations to have the human capital resources to find jobs in an economy which is unbalanced and increasingly gives the benefits of development to people with human capital assets such as English language skills and education to work in the services economy. I think also, and I will wrap up very, very briefly, India, some people would say, well, this is a problem of India's immersion in globalisation. I'm less convinced about that. India has been quite active in the WTO front in protecting some of its rights. But I think the emerging series of other nutritional problems we're seeing in India based on the double burden of disease are not really to do about India's immersion in the global economy. It's actually to do with the proliferation of middle-class aspirations into lower and lower middle-class and poorer segments of Indian society. This picture here at the bottom here is something that I see constantly as I travel around India, the proliferation of bakeries and sort of sweet stores of various kinds through the sort of small towns and cities of India. Um, and the dietary contributions of this kind of new additions to the Indian diet are quite terrible in terms of long-term public health impacts. So what will I say? I will say that India's food regulatory environment, it seems to me, still hasn't... It still lives in a world of the 60s, if you like, where the problem has been let's produce more food and through the social safety net try and distribute those to people in need. If that works, it's been somewhat successful, but India's growth profile has meant that many people fall outside that system, and that's led to the kind of contradictions we see in the Indian state today. I think we have to think of the problems of food security based in broader human security terms, in which questions such as the dignity of life, um, the right to decent jobs, um, the, res the ability of poor people to command environmental and land resources to their own household benefits comes to the forefront of policy. And I think government policymakers in India need to take very close consideration of not just problems of undernutrition, but of malnutrition and obesity and overweight. Um, again, I reiterate a point that I made a earlier in my presentation, which is that all these things say that you know, food production is not really the engine that is driving the problems here. It's other manifestations of the way the Indian economy and food system operates. I feel very strongly about that, but I would say, and this is where I chime in exactly uh, together with Professor Cellini, that that's the story up to date. That's a description of the present. I think that with the, with the forecast of climate change, and it's quite dramatic implications for food production systems in India, the, the deprivations caused by water scarcity and the contradictions of energy that were talked about. Um, this scenario I've painted might come into, might, might be reconstructed into a more dystopian scenario of major crises unless these issues are fixed in the very short term. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.